Before we begin, I'd like to thank everyone for all the support you've shown me since Worldwide Crush was released this summer. The lovely messages, the well wishes, the online reviews you've posted, the pictures you're sending me of you reading my book, mostly at the beach. All of it has contributed to the success of this book and has made me feel so cared for during this really intense and joyful, but sometimes intimidating time. And because you asked, we are happy to announce that the PCPS will finally be hosting a Worldwide Crush book club. I'm getting so many questions and comments from people, and it's clear that you all have a lot of feelings about this story. Maybe because Millie is all of us. I don't know, just saying. Um, This will be a virtual get-together where readers can share their thoughts, and the author, Hello Me, will be right there to answer all of your questions. If you're not a book club person and you'd like to just come and listen, that is fine too. The PCPS Worldwide Crush Book Club is free for our Patreon members and just $10 for everyone else. You'll find a link to sign up in our newsletter and in our link tree on Instagram. The date is Tuesday, November 14th, so mark your calendars. Thank you again for all of your support, and please enjoy the show. It's true that in Dirty Dancing, it is kind of the man who is objectified by the camera Mm -hmm. and the woman who gets turned on. And this was very new for... um, for films during yeah, that time. Right. So, what if I had I never known thought that. of that either? If I had known that in 1987, I would have made a beeline to the theater. <laughs> you would have, Kristen. You would have been the first Hello, one. Hello, world, here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who had to wait an entire week to see if Pinky Tescadero survived the Malachi Crunch. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll be saving the movie that told us to never put baby in a corner. The Gen X classic, Dirty Dancing. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Now I had the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's a truth. And I owe you. In August of 1987, Dirty Dancing hit the big screen, and Gen X has never been the same. Hitting right in our generation's sweet spot, this movie gave us everything. Great music, sexy dancing, Jennifer Grey's moral compass and her adorable hair, and of course, Patrick Swayze. But not only were we entertained, so were our parents. This movie was nostalgic for them with its throwback soundtrack in 60s-era's fashion, It was a rare feat to be able to attract audiences across generations, but Dirty Dancing's magic did just that. It truly is a movie for the ages. So 
in case you don't remember, here's a little reminder about what Dirty Dancing was. Dirty Dancing is a 1987 dance movie about 18-year-old Francis, a.k.a. Baby Houseman, played by Jennifer Grey, who was on vacation with her family at an affluent resort in the Catskills Mountains in 1963. That's where she meets and falls in love with the camp's dance instructor, Johnny Castle, played by an extraordinarily talented Patrick Swayze. Their relationship begins when Baby steps up and fills in for his regular dance partner, who has to leave the resort to get a dangerous, because not yet legal, abortion. Mm -hmm. All of this has to remain secret from Baby's family because A, again, abortion is illegal, and B, because Johnny is resort staff. He is not one of them. He is riffraff. The name of the movie comes from the after-hours underground dance party that Baby stumbles upon where she watches Johnny Castle dancing all dirty with other <laughs> workers from the resort. So this is where the staff and the other dance instructors let loose and they get raunchy with the choreography. And just like Kate Winslet going to the steerage compartment with Leo DiCaprio and Titanic, Baby is fascinated. She loves this gritty, expressive side of life. It's one her parents would never approve of. So this, of course, can't last. And the shit hits the fan. Johnny Castle is fired. Baby is forbidden from seeing him ever again. All of which jeopardizes Baby and Johnny's dance performance at the end of season talent show. The dance they've been practicing all summer. And the movie ends with the most memorable moment of the whole film. When Johnny returns to tell everyone off, he grabs Baby's hand, and they do that dance in front of all those fancy rich people, culminating in the lift heard round the world, <laughs> an iconic five seconds of Baby running toward Johnny as he dramatically lifts her overhead where she hangs in the balance, smiling, grinning ear to ear while we all scream and clap. It's like a big fuck you to all the people who tried to keep them apart. <laughs> that is Dirty Dancing. <laughs> You guys, this is another episode where I cannot believe how I get to spend my days. Yes. I cannot believe I get to spend the next hour talking about this because honestly, I feel like I hit the sweet spot with so many of these movies. It's August 21st. It's 1987. I'm just about to start my freshman year of college. Go Sun Devils. And I... My friend Lisa Callen and I sat in that movie theater and had an experience that we couldn't even describe afterward. It's much like how when Lisa Callen and I sat in the movie theater a year and a half earlier and watched Pretty in Pink. Along with Pretty in Pink, Dirty Dancing is one of my most impactful movie experiences and favorite, favorite movies. Because for me, Dirty Dancing isn't just a movie. It's a complete experience. It's, it fires all the cylinders for me. And it's way more than a rom-com. Um, it's way more than a rom-com with great music and dancing. It's layered. It's got depth. It's complicated and thought-provoking. And yeah, it's also a great story with incredible characters and a gorgeous setting and fantastic music that seeps into your soul and, and affects you in a way um, that for me, at least, a movie really hadn't until then. It's like my, it's like all these decades, I don't even have a choice but to know that Dirty Dancing is like, part of me, right? It affected me in 1987. It has the countless times I've watched it since. And it still does 36 years later. Wow. That's that's amazing. Because here's my deal. I enjoyed the movie. I think I saw it in 1987 in the summer. Remember, I had just graduated in May. So kind of right. from going college. out on that next. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Graduated May from college. And so 
I think, you know, it was a good story. Yay, I felt good when I left. Probably the music even had more of an impact on me if I think about it because that was on the radio. Those were some great songs. And like you just said, Michelle, you've seen it countless times. I can tell you I've probably seen it three, maybe. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it does not have a huge, strong connection with me because my dirty dancing memories really have to do with my parents. Okay, it is not an exaggeration to say that it is probably their favorite movie as a couple. Oh my gosh, oh, really? Oh, I know. I know. It's oh, one of the first adorable. VHS tapes that oh. they ever owned. My mom confirmed to me last night that she's seen it at least 25 times and she could go find the copy of the tape right then if I had wanted her to. So, I've got to say one of the thrills of my life was taking my parents to Mountain Lake, where much of the movie is filmed. Andy and I lived about 30 minutes from there. And so we took them to the iconic resort, and they were like little kids as they walked around the grounds. I'm covered in goosebumps, Carolyn. You guys, it was so fun. We were eating in the dining room, and she's like, I wonder where the table is and where they did that and where they did this. They had so much fun. They stayed in one of those, like, the cottages that Baby and her family stayed in. Oh, you stayed there. I've stayed there a few times yeah. because it was a popular venue for like conferences and stuff like that for um, for work. So I'd been there. They had a great Sunday brunch. So I'd been there a lot, stayed there a few times. But my parents, this was their first time, their one and only time. And um, so they stayed in the cottages. And then my mom last night was just kind of remembering the visit there. And she um, got kind of teary telling me how amazing it was and how she remembers sitting on that gazebo with my dad. And she has pictures of him sitting there. (laughs) And so then last night when I was watching that scene between baby and her father on the gazebo, I could not help but remember being on that gazebo with my dad. And you guys, it was so, I got really emotional during that. I'm sure you must have. Yeah, so that movie to me, it's a direct connection to my parents. Mm-hmm. And, um, but at the same time, last night, and we'll talk about this, um, as we discuss the movie in this episode, I have a whole new appreciation for it now watching it through my, um, 57 year old eyes mm-hmm. only for another mm-hmm. week. This will probably come out after oh, I turn 58. That's right. That's right. Wait, is that right? Yeah, 58? Or am I 58 now? No, you're 57. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm 57. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Such a relatable question, though. This is so good to know because I don't think my parents have ever seen it. And I'm sitting here now going, they would love this movie. (gasps) Yeah, they they would. They would love it. And now... It's they have a limited number of movies that they can watch because everyone every movie has the F bomb in it. <laughs> so <laughs> if I could give them dirty dancing, that would be giving them such a gift. I have you've talked about this before, Carolyn, but um I did I was not an early adopter of dirty dancing because I was in college and we didn't see a lot of movies when we were in college. I went to college in a small town with one movie theater and I didn't have a car. And if dirty dancing didn't come to that theater, you couldn't see it. And the other, well, there are a couple of reasons that I didn't see it right away. The other is that because it was a dance movie, everyone was like, oh, well, Kristen's going to love this movie. So then I wasn't going to go because I was kind of a brat that way. Um, (laughs) That sounds like Kristen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You made an assumption about me. I'm going to prove you wrong. (laughs) Right. Uh Which is dumb. I hate dance. I don't like dance. I don't like looking at me like that. (laughs) But also because this is where the title Dirty Dancing 
did a number on me, and I think it did on some other people too. I made some assumptions about this movie without knowing anything at all about it. I thought it was about strippers. And Mm. I thought that it would be trivializing dance as an art form. And I didn't, and I was like, people, I'm not into like every dance move that people do. I'm into good stuff, not hacky stuff. And I thought it would trivialize it. I thought, I assumed it would objectify women. And then to remember also at the same time, dirty dancing became a thing. It was like, oh, look, they're dirty dancing. Did you see them dirty dancing? And then the lambada? Remember the lambada was like a thing? <laughs> the pachango? Yeah. They went, they went on tour because yes. at ASU mm-hmm. that year, like like this came out in August, I want to say like the spring of 88, we went and there was a whole thing on stage and it was yeah. the it was all the people in the movie, the dirty dancers mm-hmm. from like, you know, the staff quarters that were doing like a, a performance for us. And I was not into it. It became a thing. Again, yeah. based on assumptions, not based on actual knowledge of what they were doing. I thought that dirty dancing should be something that occurs naturally, like in the basement or in the steerage compartment of the Titanic, and not something that you learned or performed. This is not at all related to the film, but it all <laughs> adds up to why I didn't see it when it came out. So I probably caught it on TV at some point. And still, it wasn't love at first sight. I grew to love it over time. Um, First, because of that last dance scene, which is one of the best in movie history, I think, including the lift. And then because I kind of started to fall in love with the chemistry between Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, um, his extraordinary technique, and her very impressive technique eventually in the Uh movie. Mm -hmm. If you pay attention, that was another reason I didn't want to see it. I was like, I don't want to watch somebody who doesn't know how to dance dance. (laughs) But then over time, she really does well. She does a great job. So now here I am at age 55 loving this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Isn't that great? It's the magic of Dirty Dancing. It really is. It right. Gets, it exactly. gets you. Yeah. It's so funny, Kristen, because we're going to talk probably just in a little bit about the way the title of that movie, um, you know, it did kind of hold it back. And it almost, mm-hmm. it, it, it was something that was a huge controversy because of the exact the right. exact way you reacted when you heard it. I made assumptions. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, we got the idea for today's episode after watching The Movies That Made Us, which is a documentary series streaming on Netflix. And the very first episode of this series features Dirty Dancing. Each episode centers on one iconic film and features interviews with actors and directors and industry insiders that reveal my favorite thing, behind-the-scenes stories and details about the making of the film that you probably don't know, many of which might surprise you or delight you, which they did me, (laughs) because that's what they do, Mm -hmm. Um, such as which movies were almost never made at all, and which actors were almost cast in place of your favorite main character. It was like one big rabbit hole reveal for me, and I learned so much. Nippalat, nippalat, nippalat. It was just like, really? Oh, my gosh. The whole series, I've watched, I've probably watched six or seven of those, and it's so cleverly written and yes. edited. Yes. Um, do, don't you guys love and the fast pacing of it? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah, we highly recommend this. Um, all the horror movies are on there. Another one that's super fun, if you guys haven't watched it, is watch the one um, that focuses on Elf. That's a great one. Oh, um, But, yeah, it's just the, the time they put into editing this is insane. Yeah, they make not, little like they make like almost like little cartoon like things yeah. happen. Yeah, it's not a straight up documentary. D- it is very something. entertainment oriented, yeah. and it's we funny. It. They make it funny. 
So oh, funny. yes. I mean, again, that there's clever writing, yeah. and we will definitely put a link to this um, series in our weekly reader newsletter. But one of the things we discovered upon watching the movies that made us, so Dirty Dancing was written by a woman, a woman named Eleanor Bergstein, and it was kind of based on her own childhood. She is the young daughter of a Jewish doctor from New York and has spent summers, you guessed it, with her family in the Catskills where she may have participated in dirty dancing competitions. She is also, get this, nicknamed Baby. Coincidence? I think not. Eleanor teamed up with producer Linda Gottlieb, and together they sent the script all around Hollywood, along with a cassette soundtrack that Eleanor had created just for the movie. They got no after no after no. Although some of the studio execs commented on how much they enjoyed the soundtrack, and they did want her to send um, a cassette they could keep uh, for their uh, listening pleasure. <laughs> their own mixtape. Yeah, right. That's right, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read an article that Eleanor said, every screenplay that you send out, you should have an accompanying playlist with it. Agreed. So that mm-hmm. reminded me of your book, Kristen. Yeah, and how you there ha- is a playlist. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh-huh. that's exactly right. Go to right. You can find the playlist. Shameless plug. Hashtag shameless plug. I love it. I love it. I love it. But again, no after, no after, no. And they attributed these rejections to the fact that the powers that be at these studios at that time were all male. And they probably, most of them still are probably all male. they are. Mm -hmm. And they did not see the significance of the film's plot and the heroine. But you guys, female power, they did not give up. They sent the script to director Emil Ardolino who at that point actually had never directed a feature film. He was a documentary filmmaker, and guess what? He loved the script, and he agreed to direct. So finally, Eleanor and Linda got the green light from Vestron Studios. Uh, No, I haven't heard of them either, because especially (laughs) at that point, they were just a direct-to-VHS studio. So they Mm -hmm. do cheesy movies, and they go right on to a videotape. So not any kind of feature film. And if you remember, at the time, in those days, straight-to-video really meant porn. Right? Like, we didn't really have Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen yet. It was (laughs) mostly... right. No, Vestron was making mostly, like, triple-X movies at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So Dirty Dancing, probably the title of this movie kind of maybe... They thought, oh, we'll turn the page of this and see what this is all about. (laughs) Right, right. This is right up our alley. Right. So now we've got a director, we've got a studio, we've got a budget, and it's time to cast the movie. Yeah, but before we get to Baby and Johnny, um, I wanted to share just a couple of fun casting tidbits with you guys that I don't know if you know about. Eleanor Bergstein, like Carolyn said, the film's writer, did you know that she wanted to cast her friend, Dr. Ruth Westheimer... To play Mrs. Schumacher, and she wanted Joel Gray, who we know as Jennifer Gray's dad, to play Mr. Schumacher, who would be Dr. Ruth's husband. But um, Wait, Ruth, who is Mrs. Uh, Schumacher? She's the little old lady that steals the money. She's oh, the little she's old lady the that everyone is thinks. Isn't that Ruth yeah. Gordon? I think but, it's well, Ruth Gordon. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, Dr. Ruth backed out when she learned that the role would involve her playing a thief. Oh, come <laughs> on, Dr. Ruth. That would have been awesome for you. Yeah. I know. And another fun, um, uh, a fun fact I found out was the part of Baby's mother, Marjorie, was originally given to an actress named Lynn Lipton. And um, she became ill during the first week of shooting. So that's when she was replaced by actress Kelly Bishop, who was originally cast to play Vivian Pressman. 
So Kelly Bishop was originally cast to play Vivian, you know, the lady with the big boobs who's like coming on to Johnny oh, all the time. The one who wants okay, Johnny. everyone, they're okay. looking at me. They haven't seen it as many times right. we as don't I know. have. I'm really looking at me like the characters. I know Vivian Johnny Castle and Baby. Yeah. That's well, you right. have to know Mr. Pressman, because remember, you know, no, um, they're I always don't. asking where he's... Okay. Well, he comes at the end to play cards. Anyway, so then Kelly Bishop moved into the role of Mrs. Houseman, and the film's assistant choreographer, Miranda Garrison, took on the role of Vivian. But something else I just learned. I was yesterday years old. So Kelly Bishop, I love her. Love, love, love her as Emily Gilmore. Um, have always loved her as Mrs. Houseman. But did you know that her big break came when she was cast... As Sheila in the 1975 Broadway production of A Chorus Line. I didn't know that. She won the 1976 Tony Award. Oh, wow. As well as the 1976 Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Actress in a Musical. I did not know that. Yeah, Sheila's ballet uh, at the ballet. And I, it's one of my favorite musicals. And so I had to go and watch Kelly Bishop as Sheila. And um, she was amazing. And so yeah, they dropped so, that line. So did fun. you read this part where mm-hmm. they, at the end of the movie when, when she Johnny says, Castle yeah. and, and Baby are dancing, her mother looks to her father and says, mm-hmm. she gets that from me, which is like mm-hmm. a nod to her chorus line past. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Everything was beautiful at the ballet. I was happy at the ballet. Okay, so let's get to the casting of Baby. So Vestron, the movie company, they wanted Pia Zadora, who was exactly the opposite of who producer Linda Gottlieb had in mind. And Eleanor Bernstein, the writer, wanted someone who resembled her at that age, because like Carolyn said, this was kind of her own story. So she wanted a really skinny girl with long, curly hair, like Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, Winona Ryder. They were high on her list. I've also um, read that Sharon Stone is said to have been considered for Baby as well. That's a no. Mm -mm. I can see Sarah Jessica Parker. I can see Winona Ryder. I cannot... Pia Zadora, she comes to it with overt sexuality. And you needed somebody sure, yeah. who would come in with some really vulnerable. Well, remember, this yeah. is a porn studio. I mean, this is a right. porn film mm-hmm. thing. She comes into her sexuality naturally, not like. How much later down the was Basic Instinct? It, that couldn't have been that long. 91, maybe? Okay. Fact check. That would have been a huge jump. Yes, <laughs> exactly. She's too old. She's too old. I think so, too. Yeah. Um, Although Jennifer Grey anyway, was 26. So she was. Not 18 either. Yeah. But as soon as Jennifer Grey uh, walked in, and Jennifer Grey had previously had roles in Red Dawn, and of course the very memorable role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, as soon as she was pushed into the audition room by her dad, Joel Grey, Eleanor and Linda were in love with her. She was the only person they wanted. They said she was baby, that she possessed this vulnerability and awkwardness and clumsiness, right? It was necessary for baby to have at the outset of the film. For some reason, though, Vestron, they still wanted anyone but Jennifer Grey. And I still, then, I'm blaming that on sexism because mm-hmm. they wanted somebody sexy. And yeah. she was sexy in her she own way. She was sexy, oh, yeah. though. She was My sexy goodness, in her when own she's way. dancing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So then um, for Johnny Castle, the number one qualification was that he had to be able to dance. Eleanor, the writer who, you know, lived this story, her number one qualification was that he had to have hooded eyes. <laughs> And she found them in the headshot of Patrick Swayze. But his resume said no dancing, which what he had danced with the Joffrey Ballet when he was 20 years old. He had had a knee injury, however, which had sidelined him. And so he decided to concentrate 
on being an actor instead. So he was out and Vestron auditioned Benicio Del Toro, Adrian's Med, and they loved Billy Zane, who kind of looked like a young Marlon Brando. He actually looked great for the part. But he just was too awkward in his horrible. dancing. It was so bad. horrible. Yes, you it's guys, please so watch this Netflix show Carolyn referenced called "The Movies That Made Us" because you get to see their screen tests. And while Billy Zane looks great, you start to see him dancing. Oh, You're like, no, 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 no. I had no, vicarious no, no. embarrassment for that man. I was yes. just like, oh, yeah. Did someone tell him to stop? I but know. even even an Adrian Zamed, it, it's almost the. This is the reason Liam doesn't like musicals, because he thinks that they're overly earnest. And so Adrian Zemet is a wonderful performer, right? Mm-hmm. But but Patrick Swayze brought the grittiness to it. He was not a Broadway performer. He was going to make it nuanced, and he was going to just be a stellar performer without being an overt performer. Mm-hmm. And I, sense? in my opinion, yeah. he brought the absolute authentic of technique to it. You believed that he was Johnny Castle, who has all that type of dance. Um, Everything he brought to it was so authentic, I thought. And then Um, he cared so much about the dance. I mean, that sounds so dumb. Well, and all you're you're about to find out. He cared about it. This was all Patrick Swayze, not Johnny Castle, too. Mm-hmm. What that that thing, that authenticness and that caring that you're talking yeah. about. He was not acting in that. Anyway, Eleanor, the writer, could not get Patrick's hooded eyes out of her mind. <laughs> and then they discovered he could dance. I mean, you guys, how did they overlook Skate Town USA? Come on. <laughs> I know. That Isn't was that on funny? his resume. That's but did you connect Skate Town USA to his role in The Outsiders? Like, I did not know that no. was the oh, God, same no. person. And so then At when- At the time, no. I didn't realize, I've always thought of Patrick Swayze as a dancer, but then all we know are, you know, is The Outsiders and, what is it, Point Break? I can't remember. But they're yeah, Red Dawn. Well, Red, Red Dawn. Dawn. And so then I thought- Wait, did we not know he was a dancer until Dirty Dancing? Was that what outed him? Well, probably, but do yeah. you guys remember? And I don't even remember now. It's been 140 something episodes, but we did do an episode with roller skating or something where we watched Skate Town USA yeah. and we were all gobsmacked. We're like, he's like Johnny Castle on skates. Yes, like, he, yes. He was, he was like basically doing like Pachanga on skates. <laughs> Yeah. You guys, I'm going to, I want to use the word pachanga at least five more times in this episode <laughs> because I love it so much. Um, okay. So the minute he came in though, Linda and Eleanor, Eleanor knew he was their Johnny. So it all comes down to these four, Sarah Jessica Parker, Jennifer Gray for baby, Patrick Swayze, Billy Zane for Johnny. They tested him in all different combos, but the t- screen test chemistry between Patrick and Jennifer was undeniable, which is almost hard to believe. Because you guys, they did not like each other. That is not so a lie. They it's did so not weird. like each other. Apparently, they had some bad blood from their, they were both in Red Dawn in 1984. But it's been said that Patrick was intense. So let's take that for what it's worth, I guess. Or I thought maybe it was romantic because they won't say what it was. So. You don't think it was? Mm-mm. No, I think he's just very intense. He's very, I mean, his wife is in this, in this, the movies that made us is, says all the time, basically he's intense. He's, you know, he's a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, you know, he's hard on the people he's in scenes with and all this stuff. Maybe she um, wasn't taking it seriously enough or something and he mm-hmm. got after her. 
Well, so everybody loves Patrick and Jennifer, but Patrick still didn't want to be the dance dude. He wanted to be a serious actor. Um, And also, you guys, dancing put constant pain on his knee. But the OG baby, Eleanor, she had taken such a liking to him. It said she always wanted to go out and like demonstrate dirty dancing with him. Like, let me show you how you thrust at me, Patrick. Now hold me tight. Again. And swivel your hips. Again. Yeah. Again. Yeah. So he finally (laughs) agreed. But the new baby, Jennifer, she did not want him. She begged them to cast anyone but him. Just last year at the 35th anniversary, you can find a million different interviews Jennifer Gray did. And she described their relationship just last year as oil and water. So there you go. However, they convinced Patrick to talk to Jennifer privately, and she agreed to put their differences aside and do it. Let's not forget, he's a dancer. He's intense, Mm -hmm. remember? And she was not. And so they say they truly had a teacher-student dynamic. The frustration shown by both of them during most of the dance scenes is really authentic. Patrick's wife, Lisa, would tell him to use his anger because that can look like passion. And actually, Jennifer agrees. Just last year, again, in this same EW um, interview I read, she said that they would have done anything for each other. Like, let's just get that out of the way, right? They they actually would have done anything for each other. But she said there was this crackle that ultimately added to the film's on-screen chemistry. The difference was beautiful, she says, because it created a kind of static. There's a push and pull. We're both trying to assert ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked. It totally worked. Oh, One of those yeah. scenes you can see that is the log scene. It's so demonstrative of their differences. Here they are eight feet over a rocky bottom. He is super macho and gung-ho, right? He is like out on that log. He's doing the whole like, you know, the whole um, sword fighting thing and and going straight at her. And she's super tentative. And she's like, well, like I'm going to lose my balance. And he did not like it that she was that timid. He wanted her to be more assertive. He was super impatient with her. He ended up falling off the log Very and hurting himself. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which caused a lot of lost time for everyone on the film. Um, and then the other scene that you can see it in, which is one of my favorites in the film, is the scene where he's teaching her the opening of their dance. And she has her arm up backwards it's up around pose, his neck. And he glides his hand down her armpit and along her side. And she cannot stop giggling. And she actually could not stop giggling. <laughs> and it was totally real. It was late. She was tired. She was hungry. He apparently was furious that she could not stop giggling. So those looks that he gives her are completely Patrick Swayze, not Johnny Castle. Mm -hmm. But they left it in. And it's one of the best scenes in the movie. I mean, so much of that is what we know now. Those are candid pieces of film. Those are not directed pieces of film, whether it's on the um, dancing on the log or whether it's in the rehearsal studio. They took all of that very natural frustration between the two of them while they were practicing, and that became the film. The um, the practicing the lift in the lake, they said it was like hypothermia type cold. Yeah. Um, and you can tell because her nipples are like, bing, yeah. that whole thing, right? <laughs> but um, it was so cold and she couldn't get it. She was, they had her up on a platform underneath there. So she didn't have to jump as high, but she, that's all real too. And you can see his frustration and her frustration at him. That's why this works. That's exactly what it is because I don't think they're acting for much of this. I think they're rehearsing and then they're doing stuff and they're filming it. And it's all very, like, all of the smiles are real. All of the frustration is real. No director saying, now Patrick, act like you're annoyed with her. 
Like nobody had to say <laughs> he that. Because he was always annoyed yeah. with her, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I read too that um, another kind of ad-libbed scene that was not in the script or anything is the one where they're crawling to each other. I forget what the yeah. song is now. Baby. Yeah. You know, love is strange. Yes. And it's fun. And it made, when I read that they just made it up and just went with it, it made me think, okay, there are some moments here where they were having fun. Like that oh, they were, yeah. um, that mm-hmm. their impromptu stuff was, yep. um, was fun and that there wasn't always crackle and um, disagreement and stuff that they could have fun, a little fun together. Yeah. I don't think they could have faked that as well. And part of that crackle too, I think, is the contrast between the two of them where he's very serious about the dance and she's kind of giddy and cracking up and not taking things very seriously. And that's where you, they're not just two people who are in love with each other. That's kind of boring, actually. You need to have some friction of some kind. Mm -hmm. And this is where their friction comes from. And I guess that friction is in real life, too. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch her crack up. I don't know. I just think, too, I go back to being, you know, 18 years old and watching this. And, yeah, he seems older than her, but kind of that where he's stern and he's very serious. Mm -hmm. To me, that was really sexy. She's kind of – she was very, like, innocent and naive and giggly and whatever. I mean, she obviously has, like you said earlier, I mean, the moral compass and her, you know, her desire to help people – um, is tremendous, but she also is still very young mm-hmm. and giggly. And so I think me sitting in the theater at 18, feeling like that too, and then watching him, who's this very, almost like the stern teacher role, not to get too yeah. like, weird or gross <laughs> into it here, but like, that was sexy. That was kind of a hot thing, right? That mm-hmm. he was very like in command of the dance and everything. And um, did you yeah. ever, did I, it ever, I loved their relationship. Did it ever bother you the age difference between them? That he seems like such an older man and she seems like such a mm-hmm. young teenager. This last time I watched it, it bothered me enough where I had to Google their ages. Mm-hmm. And so in real life, he was 34 and she was 26, which, you know, we're all adults here. That's great. But on screen, it looks like she's 16 and he's 35. Mm-hmm. And so I just, there's a little bit of Well, and she's supposed to be 18 and yeah. he's probably supposed to be in his early 20s. Yeah. Yeah, I think it did. But let's not forget, we're still in that era. I mean, even though it's late 80s, we're still in that era where, era where that those are the type of movies we watched and we accepted, mm-hmm. right? Where and there's nothing it didn't bother, And it wasn't that she was 16. No. She was 18. Right. She was going well, off to college. I had so. to look that up too because in my mind she was Peace 16. Court. But she is supposed yeah. to have just graduated from college. Mm-hmm. So she's just she's just a youthful looking person. And he's mm-hmm. supposed to be 24. So oh, okay. you know, our parents still would have freaked out probably if, you know, you're 18 and dating oh, somebody gosh. who's 24. Absolutely. Um, but in those days maybe not. I don't think that would have re- even registered back then. I mean, I think maybe I felt a little maybe a tad uneasy, more of like how realistic is this more Mm -hmm. than like, this makes me think this isn't right. It's more Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is a little bit of a reach for a movie to think that this much older guy is going to go for this. Yeah. So he was playing someone 10 years younger. So they were asking us to make quite a I mean, think about Greece and how old those people were. Yes, exactly. So you may have 
thought you were watching a dance movie when you're watching Dirty Dancing, but ultimately, Dirty Dancing is a deeply political movie about abortion, class struggle, and feminist identity. Those are not my words. That comes from Mike.com. People have a lot of opinions about this. There are two very overt issues at play in Dirty Dancing that go way beyond Patrick Swayze's dancing ability, and they are classism and abortion. At its very core, Dirty Dancing is commentary on social class. So you've got these very privileged guests at a resort, at a fancy resort, and then you have the resort workers who have to accommodate them while putting up with their snobbery and disdain. Baby is crossing the line of her social class by being with Johnny Castle. She's seeing how how he has hardship where she has none. She's also seeing how, A, the affluent guests, including her own parents, don't really care so much about that. But also, B, how the privileged people keep the working class people in their place, on their side of the line. She sees how they treat them differently or mistreat them, and they also make assumptions about them based on their working class status. The second overt social issue in the movie is abortion. Without the topic of abortion, there is no plot. The whole thing falls apart. It is the thing from which the entire story flows. And it was also, that was very purposeful on the part of the screenwriter, Eleanor Bergstein. So Baby learns to dance when Johnny's regular dance partner has to leave to get an illegal abortion because 1963. Baby offers to fill in for her and Johnny has to teach her to dance. This is how our story begins. One of the pinch points of the movie is when Johnny's dance partner comes back and becomes gravely ill after this botched abortion. She needs help, and Johnny and Baby come to her rescue, and they enlist the help of Baby's father. So abortion rights advocates, even at the time, they've called this film the gold standard for portrayals of abortion, which one author described as offering, again, not my words, offering a compassionate depiction of abortion in which the woman seeking an abortion was not demonized. And instead, the primary focus is on her health and survival. Not on the ethical dilemma of how she got here or who she is, but the fact that she's here and she needs help. Her character never really comes into question in the movie. Nobody's Mm -hmm. looking at Penny, the woman who got the abortion, and pointing fingers at her. So they're, um, they're looking at Robbie though, which I think is interesting. Robbie is the that's man. a great flip. Yes. The way that they're mm-hmm. they're demonizing him and they're looking at his character because we know of his character in the movie is yes. not that great. But isn't that I've never thought about that, Kristen, until you that's just right. said that they are mm-hmm. pointing the finger at Robbie who knocked her up and possibly against her will. Um, and Robbie mm-hmm. is a privileged person, so Robbie mm-hmm. seems to think this is no big deal. Because Robbie can get away with whatever he wants. Well, come to the end of the film, turns out not so much. Um, But as I said earlier, the screenwriter Eleanor Borgstein did this on purpose with this storyline because this was 1987. We were living in a post-Roe world. We took for granted that we had access to safe and legal abortion care. I never gave it a second thought. I didn't have strong feelings about it at all because I was just coasting, right? But the screenwriter wanted us to know what it was like before abortion was legal. She wanted us to know so that we would know what was at stake. Because the truth was that in 1963, almost 20% of deaths during pregnancy and childbirth came from illegal, unsafe abortions performed by unqualified people. Almost 20%. It's shocking. And if you were a low income or a person of color, that percentage was much higher. Mm -hmm. So after Roe, that percentage dropped to almost zero. Mm -hmm. 
That's the impact that this has. So she even in the script, she included very real details, graphic details about what is involved in an illegal abortion. She talked about dirty knives. She talked about laying on the folding table so that we would know exactly how illegal abortions went down. And she had a doctor on set to make sure that all the details were accurate and true. So just before um, the movie was released, as expected, the film's major sponsor wanted the abortion storyline cut from the film. Of course, she refused. And she really couldn't take it out because the entire plot was constructed around the abortion. They would have had to Mm -hmm. rewrite and reshoot the entire film. And so she said she did that on purpose, knowing full well that this issue would be cut if she didn't weave it in carefully. And for her, this was an important story to tell young women who had no idea that something else ever existed, how dangerous it was to be a woman, really, because there are lots of Robbies out there. It doesn't matter if um, you're a good girl or a skank, because there are tons of Robbies. It doesn't really matter. But at the end of the day, this is a movie about baby. And it's Baby who is the hero of the movie. It's not Johnny Castle or the doctor who saves Penny's life. It's Baby who stands up to everybody. She's the one who cares for Penny without judging her. She calls out her parents for being classist. She's the one who makes her own decisions about what she believes and what she wants. And she wants to do that lift with Johnny Castle. <laughs> That's what she wants. Just before you said that, I was getting all these like feelings. <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm about to cry. I feel like that love. And then that was so funny. Because it's all, because she's all of that. You're she so is, right. She's all of that. And in oh, fact, a writer her. named Melissa McEwen calls Dirty Dancing a feminist masterpiece. Oh, don't yeah. you guys love Baby? I do. Oh, I do. I do. And I, I love character. Eleanor mm-hmm. sticking to her guns. And yeah. um. I was reading in a book I have called Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies. Oh, cool. And we'll put a link to what that. A great book, um, Carolyn. I you know. guys, I, you guys, the cover of this book she's holding up is just will give you all the feels. It's just all the stacked VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. So cool. With the Sharpie written on them, handwritten mm-hmm. Sharpie. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a great cover. Hadley Freeman is the author. And um she was she says for her, again, kind of like what we've talked about, she didn't realize in those umpteen times she saw it as a child or a teen that um, that she was watching this incredibly feminist movie. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what um, Eleanor kind of wanted. This whole movie, this is Eleanor um, speaking, the whole movie is told through the female gaze. I wanted to make a movie about what it's like as a young woman moving into the physical world which also means the sexual world. And she recalls being in the editing room and some of the um, editors were saying, gosh, what are all these shots of Patrick Swayze? And she explained, that is because this is what Baby sees. And this film is through oh, Baby's eyes. It's through her sure. gaze, while, while most films are not. It's true that in Dirty Dancing, it is kind of the man who is objectified by it the is. camera mm-hmm. and the woman who gets turned on. And this was very new for um, for films during yeah, that time. Right. So, what if I had I never known thought that. of that either? If I had known that in 1987, I would have made a beeline to the theater. But I just <laughs> you would have, Kristen. It was you would have been the first one there. Hey, that's what I was there. seeing in the theater. Yeah, that's what I was sitting there seeing <laughs> every time I went back. You guys want to see it again? You want to see it again next week? You want to see it again Tuesday? You want to see it again? And interestingly, um, Hadley points out that. Um, the male movie critics of at the time, like Roger Ebert, he dismissed this movie as relatively predictable. Oh, Other um, 
other male critics kind of had the same idea. And then um, the New Yorker's Pauline Kael praised the movie and said it had her giggling happily. Isn't that interesting? But to yeah. dismiss this movie as predictable when when everything Kristen's just told us and everything we all know to be true about this movie, because we all love it, and when I say we all, I'm talking to you all listening as well, uh, not just the three of us, but it's like I said earlier, this is not a movie you can dismiss. This movie, because of all these reasons, is so deep. It's so complicated. Mm -hmm. The characters are so, they have so much depth and they're, they're so three-dimensional. There's not a character in this movie that's just a throwaway character. Even Lisa, you know, the sister. Look at what Lisa's going through with Robbie too. There's right, not yes, one character, rapist. not yeah. even, none of the adult characters either. Yeah. They're all so complicated. You know, Vivian Pressman is complicated with her husband who's always gone and she's the one who's flirting with, right. you know, mm -hmm. Johnny Castle all the time. Well, look what she's got going on in her life as well. So I don't know how anybody could have just dismissed this movie as just like predictable or anything. I'm sure they went in much like, you know, Christine, you had said earlier with assumptions and had that cloud or, you know, they were looking through those lenses uh, when they were watching the movie. So probably not really looking at those deep, deeper lines. It was just like, oh, you know, it's they didn't a romance. Bring, yeah, they didn't bring that to it at all. And I, mm -hmm. I'm really disappointed in Roger Ebert because I'm thinking in particular of the scene in the gazebo where the scene that brought you to tears, Carolyn, where Jerry mm. Orbach, baby's father, is sitting in a rocking chair and baby comes to him and she confronts him. She says, I'm sorry that I lied to you. I want you to be a better person. I want to be a better person. I love you. And she's crying. And then she runs away. And Jerry Orbach, if it were predictable, would have just continued to be a flat character, but he sits there staring straight ahead and his chin starts to wiggle. Mm -hmm. And he is deeply moved by what his daughter has just called out on him. There are a lot of things about me that aren't what you thought. But if you love me, you have to love all the things about me. And I love you. <laughs> I'm sorry I let you down. I'm so sorry, Betty. And he mm -hmm. loves her so much, but he's angry and he's confused. That's the least predictable way you uh -uh. could have directed you, that scene. The growth that he goes through in that gazebo is tremendous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, too. Also, you know, if people are saying it was a throwaway because of maybe the – the um, it's a dancing movie or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Kenny Ortega, the choreographer, also, he was very intentional, even in the dancing, as far as presenting it as a class struggle. He said that he used the grinding dance, the dirty yes. dance, mm -hmm. to kind of represent the underclass. Mm -hmm. He used the foxtrot to represent the wealthy. And he uses this exhibition dance between, uh, well, at it was supposed to be between Johnny and Penny, and they come in at the beginning mm -hmm. and do the exhibition for everybody. But then Johnny and Baby have to go do the exhibition dance at, you know, the other resort. And that's to, to kind of signify the aspirations, yeah. right? Kenny Ortega says these different dances were super important, just even in how they developed the movie. So that was all very, that was all done very intentionally. And, let, and let's go back to Titanic again, down below in steerage. You yes. have the steerage passengers doing essentially uh, Irish 1911 style dirty dancing. Right. <laughs> and yes. upstairs, you have the wealthy people doing the very straight up and down, going in a line, going in a circle with an with a nice distance apart from each other. I just had this um, epiphany. So we've been comparing Titanic and Dirty Dancing, and I'm thinking, you know, there's the lift 
that we know <gasps> from Dirty Dancing. Oh my God. And then there's Rose at the front yes. of the ship. <gasps> oh, with her arms out. Yes. yes, with her arms out that we will always associate with that movie. Hmm. Setting them free. Yes. From their shackles. They're flying. That's Helping right. them fly. Break, helping them fly and break break free from essentially their affluence, mm-hmm. mm. from their privilege. Wow. Mm-hmm. What we do here this at is, the Pop yes. Culture Preservation Society, know, folks. This is another college level class. Yeah. Uh huh. Someone needs to call us and get us on, right. like you know, a talk show. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the soundtrack because oh, the soundtrack yes. is as important as the movie. You simply cannot have the success of this movie without this soundtrack. soundtrack was released on August 4th, 1987 by RCA, went on to sell 32 million copies worldwide, and is still one of the best-selling albums of all times. Um, I will tell you that my cassette tape was like my old uh, Duran Duran cassette tapes, um, just where you can't even read the you know, read the words on it because of my thumbs taking it out and putting it back in. However, the follow-up album, More Dirty Dancing, released in 1988, um, had some more songs on it. I actually now, when I listen to it, I'll go on Spotify, listen to Ultimate Dirty Dancing, which was released in December 2003. It contains every single song. So if you want even all the just instrumentals and stuff, listen to that one. But I tell you, for those of us who remember the movie from 1987, there's nothing like that first album. And it's the type that you listen to and you, when one song ends, you know exactly what the next song is going to be, right? Do you remember how in the 70s, we had a love affair with the 50s? In the 80s, we had a love affair with the music of the 60s, the starting 60s. with the big chill, right? Yeah. And this was oh, a continuation God. of that. That's Way right. to bring up another just stellar soundtrack mm-hmm. I haven't listened to in a long time. So the backstory of the soundtrack is that Eleanor Bernstein, like Carolyn said earlier, had made a cassette tape uh, that she sent out of the music she knew she wanted to go with these scenes from her life. It was a lot of the classic songs of the 60s, like These Arms of Mine and Do You Love Me. They were songs that integrated music and dance with her story and her storytelling. But licensing old songs like that is expensive. And at the outset, this movie only had a budget of $4.5 million, which even in 1987, that was like nothing. That's a low budget they, that was movie. a shoestring. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So problem. How do we get the rights to these songs that Eleanor is saying? I like this is almost like a deal breaker with Eleanor. Like I need these songs in the movie. There was no luck. Uh, their first music producer couldn't couldn't do it. It was too expensive. So while they're filming... You guys, they had to dance to music they didn't even have. Kenny Ortega was choreographing these dance numbers to Genesis songs. That's so weird. <laughs> and they were doing them. It reminded me, though, of our Saturday Night Fever mm-hmm. discussion mm-hmm. of how some of those dances weren't to the songs that ended up being in the movie. It was Boz Skaggs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. They were dan- John Travolta was dancing oh. to Boz Skaggs instead of the Bee Gees. Oh. Well, Patrick Swayze has an idea. He had written a song a couple years before called She's Like the Wind, and he took it to Eleanor, and she loved it. Of course she loved it. She loved Patrick Swayze and his hooded (laughs) eyes, right, and his hips. Um, Loved it. Great. They have one song now for their soundtrack. That's it. So they hired Jimmy Einer to become their music producer for the movie, and 
the magician, I guess, because somehow, I don't even know how, he got all the rights to all the songs Eleanor wanted. But they still needed an original song for the big finale dance, which really came down to the very literal final moment. Because it was the night before they finished shooting the finale, Kenny Ortega, Jimmy Einer, they get a paper bag full of cassettes of original songs. They're taking them out. It's late at night. They're popping them in the tape deck. Nope. Next, next, next. The very last cassette they pull from the paper bag is I've Had the Time of My Life. Let's start with Do You Love Me by The Contours. This is the scene where Baby arrives at the staff party and she sees the dirty dancing and she witnesses mm-hmm. Johnny and Penny and she's mesmerized. And most of us can't forget that scene because of Baby's famous line, I carried a watermelon. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Hungry Eyes by Eric Carmen. The song that came to define the movie, because it has a very definite 80s style, and this is the song that's playing under the montage where Johnny teaches Baby to dance. And this is when he's snapping at her. Look, look at me. And he's pointing his to his eyes, and he's saying, lock your frame, spaghetti arms. And he's saying, this is my dance space. This is your dance space, right? I don't go into yours. You don't go into mine. And do you guys remember, this is the scene where Penny is over, and she's watching them. She's like, She's in charge of like the record player. She's wearing this leotard and tights that I swear to God, her body is like a Polly Pocket. She is so Mm -hmm. tiny. Cynthia Rhodes, holy cow. Wipe Out by the Safaris. This is a bit on the nose because it plays underneath the scene of Baby when she's struggling to learn to dance and sometimes wiping out. What an iconic scene from Jennifer Grey where she's doing that kind of little salsa move across the bridge mm-hmm. and then she gets so frustrated and she jumps yes. up and down like a toddler yep. and she her little fists go up and down. Oh, I just love that. The look on her face is just classic. Uh, then we've got Hey Baby by Bruce Channel. This is the iconic scene on the log, right? They're in the woods, and that's the, hey, baby, I want to know if you'll be my gal. Uh, And then we've got Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia, which is played under the scene where Johnny and Baby work together in the dance studio. Like Carolyn said, this is when they're crawling. This is the whole, how do you call your lover boy? She's (laughs) she's like, you know, she kind of pops out from behind the changing screen. She's like, come here, lover boy. And if he doesn't answer? Oh, lover boy. And if he still doesn't answer, I simply say, Play. That one I love because she's there. Now they're flirty and cute, and she turns his instructions on him. He's all like wanting to like put his hands all over, and she's going, You know, my frame, hey, spaghetti arms. You know, and she's hitting his arms up. It's just so cute. Cry to Me by Solomon Burke. When your baby leaves you all alone. 
This is the sexy song, guys. This is the song that's heard during the scene in Johnny's room that he puts on, and that song just makes you melt. When they're doing it. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. like the wind. We have to mention that yeah. by Patrick Swayze, which you know plays under the scene where he's forced to leave Kellerman's and peels out in the car. And what a great place to have found to put his original song. Amazing the words. I was really listening to the words last night when I was watching it as that scene was playing out. And again, it's the serendipity. He had written this song years before, but the words really fit that scene where it's playing. And it's it's just amazing mm-hmm. to me. Like the universe was at work way before mm-hmm. um, you know, these things were gonna come together. Just yeah, cool. it does. Yeah. And then, of course, I've had The Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes, which is essentially the main theme to Dirty Dancing, which plays that final iconic dance scene at Kellerman's where Baby and Johnny reunite, perform that final dance where they kill it. Hey, the time of my life. No, I never felt this way before. Never felt yes, I swear. And then, of course, comes the lift, which I'll just never forget. One of my favorite parts of that entire dance is the little nod she gives him. I was just right before that. she yes. right before she yes. goes. Yes. It's always been one of my favorite parts of it. I've had the time of my life won a number of awards, including the Golden Globe for Best Original Song and the 1988 Academy Award for Best Original Song. So I had three roommates. They were like quasi-roommates because we weren't actually in the same room, but I call them my roommates. And they had a special ritual before they went to bed every night. They all they went to bed like they were a couple, the three of them, at all at the oh, same time. And well, everything. Maybe. Now it's time to brush Triple. our teeth. Yeah, now Triple. I'm putting our pajamas on. And each night before... They shut the lights out. They would play three songs. They would play Faith by George Michael. They would play Good You song. Got the Look by Prince and Sheena Easton. And they would play I've had the time of my life. And then they'd turn out the light. Oh, my. That's, <laughs> interesting. That's an interesting combination of songs. Yes. It really is. Maybe they each chose one. That's very possible. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. their well, favorite. I actually have so many more fun facts about all the versions of this song, the involvement of the song, and we don't have that kind of time. So listeners, I'm going to include them in the weekly reader this week, just as like bullet points of fun facts about this song, not the soundtrack, just this actual Mm -hmm. song. I think it's interesting how, you know, at the beginning of this episode, Carolyn talked about how important this movie was to her parents. And I'm thinking, that's a great idea. I'm going to show this um, to my parents. But I had something happened recently that opened my eyes to the fact that this movie is, yes, it's a Gen X classic, but it's important to people outside of Gen X, too, in a way that really surprised me. So um, I got a phone call recently from Liam. And it was, he was very urgent. He had a very urgent question for me. Mom, what is the better dance movie, Footloose or Dirty Dancing? 
I mean, he was serious. He needed to get my input on this. <laughs> because there was there was a battle afoot in his dorm room. Oh my. <laughs> and, and and I was and so his his roommate Jordan was saying 100% Dirty Dancing is the superior dance movie. It's the best dance movie of all time. And Liam was like, no, it's Footloose. And so he needed he needed mom to back him up. And I was like, well, this is a very interesting conversation for 20-year-olds to be having. Turns out, Dirty Dancing is Jordan's favorite movie. She's 22 years old. So it, I, I was like, tell me about this. How did you even come to find this movie? When she was 13 or 14 years old, her mom got her VHS copy of Dirty Dancing and showed it to her, and she was hooked immediately. It's been her favorite movie ever since. And that's also when Johnny Castle becomes her first crush. And she falls madly in love with Patrick Swayze. And this is the heartbreaking part, you guys, because she's in love with Johnny Castle for a really long time, and then one day she discovers... That Patrick Swayze is dead. Oh, oh, she didn't know. She didn't know. You guys, she didn't know. She oh. said it felt like he had died. Mm-hmm. Like she went to her room and cried. It felt like Patrick Swayze died that day. Yeah. It was just so heartbreaking. In one of the recent interviews that Jennifer has done in in talking about the sequel coming up, she had a great quote that I want to share with you guys about the theme of Dirty Dancing. And I think this really sums it up. She said, I believe the basic theme of this movie is that everybody wants to be seen as being more than what they might appear to be at face value. It's the idea that transformation is possible with the synergy that happens when somebody else sees something in you that you don't see. Or that you wish someone else could see. Mm. Oh, I just love that. Yeah. I do too. I love that quote. I want to bring this to a close by quoting Melissa McEwen, the writer who called Dirty Dancing a feminist masterpiece. And she said this in Mike.com. It's difficult to overstate how important the messages of Dirty Dancing were to receive at a time when every slumber party I attended was incomplete without a slasher film in which the slutty girl was always the first to die. When a girl at school who said she hadn't kissed a boy yet was a loser, but a girl who said she had was a skank. When Mm -hmm. my minister admonished me in front of my peers for expressing doubts about doctrine and said that I would be pregnant or dead by the time I was 16. Baby stands up to men, exposing their prejudices and privileged assumptions. She helps Penny get an abortion and medical care. She doesn't leave her life or change her plans for Johnny Castle when he's fired and skips town. Any one of these things would have made Dirty Dancing leagues better than most of the claptrap aimed squarely at teenage girls. I still love watching Baby dance with Johnny Castle, who esteemed her so much, so hard, that he fiercely insisted, nobody puts Baby in a corner. Thank you for listening today, and we'll see you next week. I've got to share with you why Friday is one of my favorite days of the week. Not because it's the beginning of the weekend, but because that's the day that the PCPS newsletter 
hits my inbox. It's always full of fun tidbits like links from our episodes, book recommendations, pop culture trivia facts. So if you are not already a subscriber, let's change that right now. Simply go to our website at poppreservationist.com or to our link in bio on Instagram. It's that easy. As season 10, 10, my gosh, we're not that old. As season 10 comes to a close, we want to thank all of you for listening and for sharing our podcast with others, and especially those of you who have left reviews on Apple Podcasts and clicked those stars. There's no way we'd have gotten to season 10 without that kind of support from all of you. And to those of you who support us with your Patreon memberships and provide us with the financial support that's necessary to keep the gas in this old PCPS tank, we're literally indebted to all of you wonderful, wonderful people. And today we're wrapping up season 10 by saying a huge thank you to a giant group of patrons, honestly, wait till you hear this list, that we haven't had a chance to yet this season. So here we go. Let me take a deep breath. Thank you to... Charles, Linda, Helene, Teresa, Jennifer, Stephen, Christina, Linda, Kathleen, Mark, Erica, Rosarita, MP, Robin, Cheryl, Julie, another breath, Susan, Barbara, Jennifer, Elizabeth, Melissa, Gail, Lorna, Nina, Natalie, Lisa, Erica, Jennifer, Stella, Tracy, Christina, Mike, Sherry, Diane, and JP. Thank you all so, 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 so much. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the cast of Three's Company. Two good times. Two happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. Cheers. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you.